When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British royal history. We've covered quite a lot in our series over royal residences. Those that we have studied are still mainly occupied by not only the current sovereign, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, but also other members of the royal family, regardless if they're, quote, working for the firm or not. We've established the difference between the Crown Estate, the Royal Collection Trust, and historic royal palaces, and who aids in running the estates themselves, and what charities and groups do what. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the more famous, or rather infamous, residences within historic royal palaces. That's right, we're venturing away from residences that are currently occupied into one that is no longer occupied. The residence hasn't been occupied by not only a sovereign, but a royal in a few centuries now. It's kind of a Frankenstein palace with an old Tudor building colliding with this magnificent Baroque palace. If you haven't figured it out already, or if you haven't seen the title, today we are heading over to the very prestigious Hampton Court Palace. This residence has seen it all. Political intrigue, murder, feuding family members, civil war, anything, you name it. It's seen a lot of history, and it's wonderful that we, the public, are very fortunate to be able to interact with it, especially what's left. Known most for being associated with King Henry VIII, this palace has seen quite a lot of history in its 500 years. Everyone, buckle in. We have a lot of history to cover as we turn back time and delve into Hampton Court Palace. Hampton Court Palace is located in the London Borough of Richmond upon the River Thames, which is roughly about 12 miles southwest and upstream of central London. It's very interesting to look at when you look at it from different angles. It's very imposing and intimidating, but it's literally one half Tudor Palace and one half this weird Versailles lookalike Baroque Palace. It's... It is this Frankenstein of a building. It's very red with red brickwork and other intricate plaster work. But I will say I do personally have a favor for the Tudor side. The chimneys in the brickwork is truly wonderful. And especially the one fountain on the Tudor side that supposedly had wine in it way back when. I... I just personally, that's just my own opinion. I think some of the work on the Tudor Palace is slightly more interesting, but that's again just my opinion. In order to get into the history, we have to turn back time and head back to the 16th century. The land now known as Hampton Court Palace didn't originally start in the hands of the crown. 
Originally, it was a portion of land that was the property of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem. In 1514, Cardinal Thomas Wolseley purchased the property and in turn began a massive project. Cardinal Wolseley was King Henry VIII's Lord Chancellor and was a very high-ranked advisor to the king. They had a very personal relationship as sovereign and advisor. In building his palace, Wolseley was attempting to create a Renaissance Cardinal's Palace of a rectangular symmetrical plan with grand apartments on a raised piano noble, all rendered with classical detailing. It's suggested that it's likely that Cardinal Wolseley had been inspired by Paulo Cortez's De Cardinaltu, excuse me if I mispronounce that, but it's a manual for cardinals that included advice on palatial architecture, which was published in 1510. The palace was intended to show, quote, the essence of Wolseley, the plain English churchman who nevertheless made his sovereign the arbiter of Europe and who built and furnished Hampton Court to show foreign ambassadors that Henry VIII's chief minister knew how to live as graciously as any cardinal in Rome. The architecture is an excellent and very rare example of about a 30-year period when English architecture was in this wonderful harmonious transition from domestic Tudor which was strongly influenced by Gothic style, to an Italian Renaissance classical style. This blending of styles was realized by a small group of Italian craftsmen working at the English court in the early decades of the 16th century. They specialized in the adding of Renaissance ornament to very otherwise straightforward Tudor buildings. It was one of these Giovanni da Maiano, who was responsible for the set of eight relief busts of Roman emperors, which were set in the Tudor brickwork of the palace. Wosley wanted to create a grand estate and palace where he could not only host the king, but other royals within the court, foreign monarchs from other monarchies, and just anybody. Wolseley was able to enjoy his splendid palace for a few years in peace. Everything was wonderful. But soon history would take a turn for the worse. Hearing this massive investment in this huge palace being built, King Henry VIII's ears perked up at this thought, and he began to get curious. Furthermore, Wolseley started to fall from grace, and in 1528, he saw the writing of on the wall of his eventual demise. In 1529, as Wolseley officially fell from favor, the cardinal gave the palace to the king as a way to soften his fall into disgrace. He would pass away in the following year. The palace went on to become one of the most favored residences of King Henry VIII. And very soon after acquiring the property, he set off on his own plan to enlarge it and make it one of his biggest residences to date. The court held by King Henry VIII was massive. It was around 800 to 1,000 courtiers that would travel with him. That's one thing that we, in today's mind, sometimes have a hard time fathoming. The court of King Henry VIII would travel from palace to palace, and some of them do still survive. We do have Windsor Castle, and we do have St. James's Palace, but others don't exist anymore. We think of Windsor Castle being huge and grand, but at the time, it really wasn't. 
in a lot of the palaces and castles that the court of King Henry VIII would travel between weren't big enough. And so when he acquired Hampton Court and all of its land, it was the perfect place for him to expand and officially build a residence that could actually hold his entire court in one place. When he acquired the palace in 1529, one of the first projects that he did was to expand and create wonderful kitchens at Hampton Court Palace. The kitchens there are truly magnificent. They are Goliath structures meant to feed hundreds of courtiers and royals every day, which totaled around 1,600 meals per day. And they would spend weeks upon weeks at these palaces. One thing that's wonderful about these kitchens is they still exist. They weren't destroyed in renovations. They were perfectly preserved. So this is a wonderful bit of history directly connecting to King Henry VIII that still exists to this day that we, the public, can tour. With these kitchens, the king used it to demonstrate his magnificence and power in every possible way, through lavish banquets, in addition to extravagant court life, and fabulously expensive art. The art collection at Hampton Court Palace is truly something to marvel. By the 1530s, King Henry VIII's Hampton Court Palace was truly magnificent. It was a home, a hotel, a theater, and a lavish leisure complex. In addition to Henry's state and private apartments, where in those he slept, he ate, he relaxed, there was also Queen's apartments built, private apartments, and the palace had to have accommodation for the hundreds of courtiers that were there. Around the base court, which is the first big courtyard of the Tudor Palace inside the Tudor Palace area, there were about 30 suites for lodgings for some of its grander visitors. But in all these suites, the style depended on the status of the occupant. But of course, it was intended to impress and awe and show the majesty of King Henry VIII. Between 1532 and 1535, Henry VIII added the famous Great Hall and the Royal Tennis Court. To give historical context here, during the Tudor times, the Great Hall was the most important room of not only the palace, but pretty much any grand estate. In the Great Hall, the king would dine in state, seated in his wonderful regalia upon a raised platform, and not only would he eat, there would be entertainment and palace intrigue and everything would be happening there. The Great Hall was the place to be. The hall took about five years to complete, and King Henry VIII was very impatient. So impatient that, allegedly, he would have the masons complete work through the night working by candlelight so it would get done sooner. Continuing with renovations added by King Henry VIII, the gatehouse to the second inner court was finally finished in 1540, in addition to the official Hampton Court astronomical clock. The clock is an early example of a pre-Copernian astronomical clock. Still functioning to this very day, the clock shows the time of day, the phases of the moon, the month, the quarter of the year, the date, the sun and star sign, and the high water at London Bridge. 
The latter information was so important to those visiting the palace, because keep in mind, it's on the side of the River Thames. And of course, at the time, the preferred method of transport was by barge, and the low water London Bridge created very dangerous rapids. So the gatehouse and the clock was really important for transportation among the River Thames. The gatehouse is also known today as Anne Boleyn's Gate. And Anne Boleyn being the very infamous second wife of Henry VIII. Work was still underway on Anne Boleyn's apartments that was going to be above the gate when she was famously beheaded. While the palace during King Henry VIII's time was this leisure palace. It was meant to show his prestige, his power, his magnificence, everything about him to awe and entertain. While it had all this going for it, there were still some moderately scandalous moments and unhappy times that happened at the palace. In 1537, the king's much-desired male heir, the future King Edward VI, was born at the palace, but Jane Seymour, the mother and wife of King Henry VIII at the time, died just two weeks after giving birth. She died at the palace. It is said that her ghost appears in white upon the anniversary of her death. And it is said that Jane Seymour is the only wife out of all of King Henry VIII's wives to not only have a proper official burial, but it's the funeral and burial fit for a queen. Her heart and lungs were apparently removed and placed in a lead-lined box behind the altar within the church on site. If my memory is correct, they really haven't tried to retrieve the box because in doing so, they'd have to remove too much from the palace and in that room, and it runs the risk of damaging the historical artifacts and the woodwork and the masonry, so... They go by record that it's supposed to be there, but we really can't touch it. Four years after the death of Jane Seymour, while attending mass in the palace's chapel, the king was informed of the adultery of his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. She was then confined to her room for a few days before being sent to Sion House and then off to the Tower of London, where she would meet her fate. Legend claims that she briefly escaped her guards and ran through what is now known as the Haunted Gallery to beg Henry for her life and to spare her, but she was eventually recaptured. And to this day, it is said that her ghost can still be seen running through the gallery begging Henry to save her. One thing to note about Hampton Court Palace, and it shows a little softer side of King Henry VIII, is that throughout all his marriages and the tumultuous drama of all of them, there are little tokens of love and affection to all of his wives within the palace in one way or another. Now, there were more during King Henry VIII's lifetime, and there are very few that have survived to modern day. And there's a documentary narrated by Dr. Lucy Worsley that goes into a lot of these in more detail. And one thing she points out is there's homages to all of his wives, but it's hard to locate any that are to Anne Boleyn. But there are a few very hidden, moderately out of sight of the public, that they missed. As the story goes, upon knowledge of Anne Boleyn's infidelity and upon her execution, King Henry VIII had all tokens of her removed from the palace. But some were missed, and they survived to this very day. King Henry VIII died in January of 1547, and was then succeeded by, as you would expect, his son, King Edward VI, and then he was succeeded by his daughters, 
It was at Hampton Court Palace that Queen Mary I retreated with her new husband, King Philip, to spend her honeymoon after they wedded in Winchester. Mary chose Hampton Court Palace as the birth for her first child, but her first child turned out to be the first of two phantom pregnancies. She wanted so bad to have a child that her body began to fake some of the symptoms. She had initially wanted to give birth at Windsor Castle as it was a much more secure location and because she was still fearful of rebellion. But Hampton Court was considerably larger and could accommodate the entire court. Mary stayed at the palace awaiting the birth of her first, quote, child for over five months and only left because the inhabitable state of the court being kept at one location for so long, they were getting very angry. Mary was then succeeded by her half-sister Elizabeth I, and it was Elizabeth who built the eastern kitchens, but these kitchens today are used as the, as the palace's public tea room. We have a lot more history to cover, so buckle in. The Tudor period came to an end when Elizabeth I passed away in 1603. The queen was then succeeded by her first cousin, twice removed, the Scottish king, King James VI, who then became in England as King James I. And as you would expect, the new House of Stuart moved into Hampton Court Palace and used it frequently. In 1603, uh, William Shakespeare's Kingsman troupe first performed Hamilton and Macbeth for the new Stuart King at Hampton Court Palace. In 1604, the palace was the site of King James's meeting with representatives of the English Puritans, and this was then known as the Hampton Court Conference. While an agreement with the Puritans was not reached, this meeting then led to King James commissioning, of course, the King James version of the Bible. King James was succeeded in 1625 by his son, King Charles I. And yes, it is that King Charles I. Charles I used the palace to house much of his astonishing art collection, including Magenta's The Triumph of Caesar paintings. And this is in addition to the splendid art collection that King Henry VIII and other sovereigns had amassed over the years. This was also the setting for his honeymoon after he married his 15-year-old bride, Henrietta Maria, in 1625 as well. Hampton Court Palace was to become both his palace, his home, and his eventual prison. In 1647, he found himself under house arrest after his defeat in the Civil War. In an attempt to flee Oliver Cromwell's parliamentarians, the king escaped through the Privy Garden. Charles was later recaptured and executed in 1649. Following King Charles's execution, the palace became the property of the Commonwealth and was presided over by Oliver Cromwell. Hampton Court became his own private home. Despite his Puritan ideals, he really appreciated the art, especially the tapestries, and as much as he didn't like the idea of a king, he enjoyed living like a king. Unlike some of the other formal royal properties, the palace escaped relatively intact. While the government auctioned off most of its contents, the building itself was all but ignored and protected. After the restoration of the monarchy, 
King Charles II and his successor, King James II, visited Hampton Court Palace, but they largely preferred to reside elsewhere. By this point in history, court standard has significantly changed, and by the very invoke trends of the French court in the Palace of Versailles, Hampton Court appeared to be incredibly old-fashioned. It was in 1689, shortly after Louis XIV's court permanently moved to Versailles, that the palace was seen as antiquated, old, and this needed to be addressed. England had joint monarchs, King William III and Queen Mary II. Within months of their ascension, they embarked on a huge rebuilding project at Hampton Court Palace. They asked Christopher Wren to design a new Baroque palace for them with the master of works to be William Talman. The main intention was to completely bulldoze the Tudor palace and build a splendid Baroque palace in its place. And the really only Tudor part surviving was to be the Great Hall and the Fountain Court. But of course, that didn't happen. Only half the palace was destroyed. The plan for this brand new Hampton Court Palace was to be two courtyards at right angles to each other and, of course, palace and apartments surrounding it. Wren's original design was for a domed palace to resemble the works of, of Jules Hardouin Masnart and Louis de Vins, who were the architects that King Louis XIV employed at Versailles. I'm, again, sorry if I mispronounced those. French does not come easy to me. It's been suggested that the plans were abandoned, the original plans were abandoned, because the resemblance to Versailles was too subtle and not strong enough. At the time, it was impossible for any sovereign to visualize and make a palace that did not emulate Versailles and its repetitive Baroque form. Of course, the resemblances are there. The facades are not as long as Versailles, and they have, of course, symmetry and a repetitive pattern. However, at Hampton Court, unlike the Palace of Versailles, there's an extra dimension of contrast between the pink brick and the pale stone and the circular windows. There's enough that makes Hampton Court independent, but you can clearly look at it and understand that Versailles very much influenced the exterior of this. During the reign of William IV and Mary II, they did quite a lot to the grounds of Hampton Court Palace in addition to the physical palace itself. Most notably was the addition of a maze on the grounds with a sprawling wilderness garden put in by William. The origins of this famous maze are slightly unknown, slightly controversial. I tried to research why it was controversial and it didn't really come up. They just said it was controversial but it's thought that it was created by the end of the 17th century. This maze covers about a third of an acre and it's known for confusing and intriguing visitors with its many twists, turns, dead ends, and apparently from what I've heard, it's very confusing. Known most for being in a large trapezoidal shape, it was designed by George Lenton and Henry Wise. It was originally planted using a hornbeam, but it was later replaced using yew, and apparently it's been replaced again. Here, courtiers could escape the politics of the palace, let their hair down, gossip, take in the fresh air, but also maybe get lost within the maze and maybe were never seen again. That's alleged. There's not a list of people that have gone missing in, in the maze, but you never know. During all this renovation, half of the Tudor palace was completely destroyed, and in doing so, they destroyed King Henry VIII's official staterooms and private apartments. 
The new wings around the fountain court contained new apartments and private rooms, one that was for the king and one that was for, for the queen. Each suite of staterooms had its own state staircase, and the royal suites were completed with equal value because William and Mary were joint sovereign. It wasn't sovereign and consort. They both were sovereign. The king's apartments faced south over the privy gardens, and the queen's faced east over the fountain garden. The suites were linked by a gallery running the length of the east facade, which is another reference to Versailles, where the king and queen's apartments are linked by the Galerie de Glace. However, at Hampton Court, the gallery linking them is a little bit modest and not as grand as its Versailles counterpart. The king's staircase was decorated with frescoes by Antonio Verrio and decorated in ironwork by Jean Didiot. Other artists commissioned to decorate these brand new rooms included Gerling Gibbons, Sir Thomas Thornhall, and Jacques Rousseau, and the furnishings were designed by Daniel Moreau. After the death of Queen Mary II, King William III lost interest in the renovations and work stopped at the palace. And in some ways, that helped the palace because the other part of the Tudor part of the palace was saved. And that's why we have the kitchen and the great hall and some of the rooms that were used by Henry and his court was because the King William lost interest. However, it was at Hampton Court Park on the palace grounds in 1702 that he fell from his horse and was later taken to Kensington Palace, where he would eventually pass away. He was succeeded by his sister-in-law, Queen Anne, who continued to decorate and renovate the current state apartments, in addition to remodeling the chapel itself. On, upon Queen Anne's death in 1744, the Stuart dynasty officially came to an end. The successor to Queen Anne was King George I of the Hanoverians. We now have the Hanoverian kings. And he is he and his son, King George II, were the last monarchs to reside at Hampton Court Palace. And this is where some family drama comes in. Under King George I, six rooms were completed in 1717 to a design by John Vanborough. He would also add rooms for his son, the then Prince of Wales, and his wife. He also added a new kitchen to the palace known today as the Georgian House. When King George I returned in the summers to his native homeland of Hanover, he would reluctantly agree to have uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales represent him in England. And in turn, they really showed him up. They entertained lavishly. They had a glittering court that outshined the king. This infuriated George I so much that he then tried to outdo that court and to make an even bigger impact at Hampton Court Palace. So you had these two courts going against each other. The King and the Prince of Wales had their courts trying to see who could outdo the other one. In 1718, the Tudor Tennis Court was refurbished and a grand assembly room and the Great Hall was converted into a theater. When King George II succeeded to his father in 1727, the palace entered its final phase as a royal residence. King George and Queen Caroline completed work on their apartments and started new works for the youngest members of their very large royal family. The architect William Kent was also employed to design new furnishings and decor, which included the Queen's Staircase and the Cumberland Suite, which was, of course, to be used by the Duke of Cumberland. 
Today, the queen's private apartments are open to the public, which include her bathroom and her bedroom. It is known that Queen Caroline apparently had a very frequent bathing routine, which was irregular for the time, and the staff at Hampton Court Palace looked at her weird. By 1737, King George II no longer wanted to use Hampton Court as a royal palace. It quickly, once he left, it quickly then became a grace and favor residence for other members of the royal family and other members of the court. Many of those that used it as a grace and favor residence were aristocratic widows that were in very precarious circumstances, and they were offered free accommodation in return for their husband's service or their family's service to the monarch. The various apartments, although very grand, were sometimes not always the most comfortable place to live. Residents regularly complained that the palace was, quote, perishingly cold, damp, and had no access to hot water. In 1838, Queen Victoria ordered the gates of Hampton Court to be thrown open to all of her subjects as an early act of generosity. So it's been almost a hundred years that the palace was closed off and was just used as a royal apartment complex. There was a massive renovation to get the palace in order to be viewed by the public. The very heavy-handed restoration plan at its time reduced the main gatehouse, the palace's principal entrance, by two stories and removed the lead cupolas adorning its four towers. Once opened, visitors flocked to enjoy the stunning palace, the architecture, the decor of the rooms, and get lost in the maze and relax in the beautiful gardens. By 1881, over 10 million visitors had been recorded, which at its time is mind-blowing. This was a huge number. Hampton Court Palace was one of the few attractions that was open on a Sunday, which for working people was the only day they had off and the only day they could visit. Visitors arrived by every means possible they could, from boat, train, public coach, you name it. The journeys were made far easier when railways were added to Hampton Court Palace. However, the sudden rush was not very welcomed by the residents that were actually still living at the palace, who had previously enjoyed the privacy and the wonder of the palace by themselves. They complained that the gardens became, quote, hell on earth. The people came intoxicated and the scenes in the garden on the Lord's Day were beyond description, end quote. In the 1920s, further leisure activities were provided along with, finally, a parking lot. Visitors could take tea in the Tilt Yard Cafe, enjoyed putting on games on the green, play tennis in its own separate tennis court, and enjoy these wonderful new additions. Today, Hampton Court Palace is still a full-functioning attraction for the public to view. Yes, it is still technically owned by the Queen, but it is incredibly unlikely that her or any other royal will want to reside within its walls. Simply put it, it's too behind in the times. It's a museum. In addition to the palace itself being a massive museum, it is also the home of the Royal School of Needlework, and it is the official headquarters for historic royal palaces. When open, it's quite an experience to behold. They have actors portraying other historic figures and royals of the past, and they really try to make it as if you're stepping back in time when you walk into the walls of the palace. One of the newest attractions for families to enjoy is the Tudor-inspired Magic Garden, which was opened in 2016 by Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge. 
two famous festivals still happen at Hampton Court Palace. There's a wonderful music festival and the RHS Flower Show, which of course stays in true form to Henry VIII's original vision of Hampton Court being a pleasure palace. Of course, on top of the glittering rooms, historical reenactments, music, flowers, gardens, there's the fantastic art collection that is housed within the palace. And not only are there original works from the Tudor and the Baroque period still within the walls, but there is a permanent rotating display of some of the Royal Collection's finest works. So if you really want to see some wonderful art, head on over to Hampton Court Palace. Now, remember the Grace and Favor apartments that were mentioned earlier? They were quite common in the 18th and 19th centuries, but as the 20th century loomed close, they very quickly fell out of fashion. By the 1960s, fewer and fewer residents had really any desire to live within the palace walls. The last admitted residence was in the 1980s, and as of 2017, there are officially no more residents residing within the Grace and Favor apartments at Hampton Court Palace. If you're looking to expand your knowledge on the palace further, to go into real detail about the feud between King George I and King George II, Tudor palace intrigue, drama with King Henry VIII, there are quite a lot of documentaries that have taken place at the palace, and the famous British historian and curator at Historic Royal Palaces, Dr. Lucy Worsley, has many of them that she narrates and takes part in, and they're wonderful, they're interesting, and where I got a lot of my information today. Hampton Court Palace has seen a lot in Hollywood. Hollywood really loves to use Hampton Court Palace. Apart from the documentaries filmed on location, it's been used in film and TV quite a lot. The palace served as the filming location for A Man of All Seasons, which was directed by Fred Zeinman. It also appeared in the HBO miniseries John Adams, where Adams was received by King George III as the first U.S. ambassador to the Court of St. James. The palace was used in the films To Kill a King from 2003, The New World from 2005, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides from 2011, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows from 2011, Holmes and Watson from 2018, and the Oscar-nominated film The Favorite from 2018. The palace also served as a location for the live-action filming of Disney's live-action Cinderella from 2015. The location was also used for a performance of The Six Wives of Henry VIII by rock keyboardist Rick Wakeman in 2009. And in 2020, some scenes for Belgravia, a TV series that was written by Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame, were filmed in the gardens at the palace. Now, there is the famous show, The Tudors, that while they depict scenes at Hampton Court Palace, they did not use Hampton Court Palace. And lastly, in terms of it being used in current fame, the palace was the venue for the road cycling time trial for the 2012 Summer Olympics and temporary structures for the event, including a set of thrones for the time trialists in the metal positions were installed upon the ground. So it was used in the Olympics as well. Hampton Court Palace has pretty much seen it all. Beheadings, political intrigue, and the politics of Henry VIII's court, civil war, also a fire, and many, many more in its 500 years. Historians are quite glad that the plans to demolish all the palace were not carried out. It perfectly preserved this Tudor world that, in some cases, has been lost to, to time. 
even though it is a Frankenstein building with split personalities, it's a beautiful representation of using old and new to create this wonderful palace. There's a lot of history that resides within its walls, and there are quite a lot of ghost and paranormal stories that have happened at Hampton Court Palace. You can imagine with King Henry VIII as the main sovereign behind it, there's quite a lot of stories. If you want to hear some of those, please suggest them and let me know. And maybe during spooky season in October, I will explore some of those stories. While this was incredibly quick, this, dear listeners, has been the overview of one of England's most famous palaces, Hampton Court Palace. My sources for today's episode are the website for historic royal palaces, various documentaries, narrated by Dr. Lucy Worsley, Wikipedia, the site thetutorswiki.com, and the website britainandbritishness.com. I do have a small announcement at the end of this episode. For the foreseeable future, I will be going down to one episode a week instead of two episodes a week, and that will be uploads every Thursday. I've been enjoying two episodes a week, but currently I am in graduate school, and I need to focus and If I want to put out good products for everybody to enjoy, then I need to scale things back here and go back to one episode a week for the foreseeable future. We will be going back to two episodes at some point, but for right now, I need to focus on school and also putting out good products for all of you. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. If you want to email me to let me know how I'm doing or to suggest topics for future episodes, you can email me at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. Any and all recommendations are very much welcome. You can head over to Twitter and follow me there at fanatic underscore royal. I interact with you as best I can there, provide updates in real time, and of course would love feedback to make the podcast the very best it can be. If you're feeling generous and would like to make a donation to help support the podcast, you can donate on the Anchor homepage or click the link on the Twitter homepage. It's pinned at the top. Your your monthly donations will help make this podcast the best it can be, and you will get a shout out every episode as I'm very gracious. Head over to Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Rate, review, subscribe, and share. That really matters, and I would really love to make the podcast the very best it can be. Have a great rest of your day, stay safe and stay healthy, and I'll see you in the next one.